coming up. We've spent thousands of dollars and over a decade refining the perfect home media setup. Today, we get nostalgic and share what worked and what really didn't. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex. And this is Self-Hosted 23. Over the years, you and I have inadvertently converged on two or three different things in our lives. The finer things in life, I might say. You know, we both have the perfect car, the Volkswagen Golf. We both have the same laptop as of last week. And also the perfect media player, the NVIDIA Shield TV. And I thought it would be fun today to walk the audience through both of our rationales for ending up at the NVIDIA Shield completely separately from one another. I think the timing is perfect because I just recently went through an old stash of hardware and pulled out a bunch of old gear that over the years I used for my media center setups. So my memory is fresh on this topic. It's been a long journey. And I also feel like this was one of those journeys I am happy to have walked, even though I I tried a lot of things that didn't work out and I spent a lot of money on devices. But I think it ultimately led me to where I'm at now. And I'm very happy with my media setup now, which I'm sure we'll get to. Unfortunately, Chris, failure is a prerequisite for me being happy with the current situation. You know, I have to fail a few times in order to be happy with what I've got, because if I don't fail, I'll be sat here going, well, that was too easy. I'm going to go and try this other shiny thing over there instead. You know, I started thinking maybe that's why folks ask us why we like Plex so much. Maybe if you've just come into it right now and don't have the historical context of where media centers that you could self-host came from, it's easy to overlook what Plex has brought us. I mean, there's lots of solutions now, too, so that's not completely the reason. But I wonder if by the end of this episode, if maybe that's something worth reflecting on. I know I personally really started getting deep into this probably mid-2000s. Ooh, okay. I was a wee boy back then. but <laughs> I, I know for me the big like moment that stands out clearly were there's two products. I, I tried multiple branches for a while. I tried commercial offerings, open source offerings. What was your quote-unquote first media player, media server center thing? My recollection was... I, which was unusual for me at the time, tried out Windows Media Center. I went for it. Uh, I think I started, I don't know if you recall this, but there was a Media Center edition of Windows XP. I do, yeah. Yeah, I think that, I, I dipped the toes in around then. I never actually used that one in anger, although I do remember it. My first kind of playback device was Winamp. And the reason I used Winamp was because it had a detachable video window. So I had the whip the llama's ass bit at the top, And then I had a component cable coming out of my graphics card going into my CRT television. And that was playing, you know, it was the first time I watched Snatch and Lockstock and so many classic movies that I absolutely adore to this day. And Family Guy, I was watching season one or two, you know, it was a while ago. I suppose my very first iteration, like the alpha stage prototype model was just a machine I think it ran Plasma Desktop with VLC and then a wireless keyboard that had a built-in trackpad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but that didn't have high spousal approval factor. (laughs) Well, that's something I'm going to talk about throughout this because, I I mean, I've I've had the same girlfriend and wife now since 2008, seven. I should probably know that. Uh, A long time. So she's been through a lot of this journey with me. And before Winamp, I was just using 
DVDs into DVD players and video, you know, VHS cassettes and that kind of stuff, you know, like a normal person. And then the internet came along and kind of changed the game for delivering music. And then video kind of slowly caught up because the file sizes were a lot bigger and it was hard to get them. So I started using Handbrake to rip the DVDs that I did have and just collated them in a folder, you know, uh, with, you know, movie name and and whatever. So I had a very small, you know, we're talking how many DVDs does a 15-year-old kid have? Like a dozen. We're not talking a lot, you know, like I have a thousand movies on my server now. Which leads me to probably the next important milestone, which was buying the PlayStation 3 for me. And I bought this because of the promise it could run Linux. It was a Blu-ray player that could run Linux. And that sounded cool to me. I was at uni, so I, was, I think I was 18, 19, something like that. And uh, I, I must have discovered you 11 years ago. <laughs> yeah, my PlayStation 3 install Linux video was pretty popular back in the day. Like back in the day, 300,000 views on a video was pretty good. That was considered like a lot of views. On YouTube back then, the dark ages. Yeah. And the great thing about the PlayStation 3 was it had support for DLNA. So it could do some basic network browsing, if I recall. It wasn't very good though. Right. DLNA. That's the acronym I could never quite say right. (laughs) But more importantly is it was initially the cheapest way to get a Blu-ray player. There was just no better, cheaper way to get a Blu-ray player. Nope. I remember going into, I think it was HMV in the middle of Manchester and seeing some guys playing Gran Turismo on this, they had this huge, like 90 inch TV on the wall and just being absolutely floored by the quality of the graphics back then. You know, it was an Xbox 360, PS3 kind of era. So we're going back a fair bit, you know, 720p was considered really good quality. (laughs) Yep. Did you ever get your hands on an Xbox, the original Xbox? I actually had an original Xbox when it was actually just a games console. But obviously later on, people modded it to run XBMC, but we'll come on to that. So my next system was a Core 2 Duo. I built my first standalone dedicated home theater PC. I went to Aria PC in Manchester. I actually got a speeding ticket that day because I was so excited to go and buy this computer. <laughs> <laughs> right, if anybody's in Manchester, right by the uh, Manchester City Football Stadium on that little dual carriageway. Anyway, I went there and I, I bought this super cheap case because I hadn't really figured that the case was important yet. I bought the absolute cheapest components I could. Like I, I was I was a student, so every absolutely every penny counted just to get a speeding ticket of like 60 quid was a bit annoying. It was fine. It was hot. It was loud. But it meant that my student laptop was no longer pulling double duty as my main media playback device. And so finally I had two devices. Was it a pizza box style case? You know, that that uh, more horizontal style PC case? Because that around that era is when I built one too. That It wasn't a high-end media center PC case, but I seem to recall... It was essentially a pizza box style with a little window in the front for an IR blaster that was an add-on it did not come with, but it had the window in case you installed one. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it was Antec. Sure. Yeah, Antec sounds right for me. Uh, That was the second case that I bought after I realized the cheapest one was just going to have really bad thermals. But it was the the first one was like like an amplifier. It was that kind of horizontal flat kind of sits underneath a CRT monitor style. And there was a couple of hard drives in there, probably had like 500 gigabytes of storage, which was a lot (laughs) back then. 
But I think one of the most important things that came came about around the time of the PlayStation 3, around the time of that kind of core two duo era, was the proliferation of HDMI. Do you remember that that didn't used to be a thing? Yeah. I struggled to try to get component on as many things as I could. But when the era of HD came out, also the era of DRM and HDCP and needing to send higher resolution things to the television and they needed a standard. And so HDMI came out and I had to upgrade my hardware. Uh, The television and the receiver both did not support HDMI. Now I had, you know, for a while, of course, started with coax then went to RCA and then went to um, component, road component as long as I could because you could technically get HD over component, 720 at least, and it was um, unencrypted, so it was easy to copy and capture. Well, my fancy pants 4K TV still has a component input. So, really? I mean, technically, you could have ridden that train until today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially if I could avoid uh, HDCP. Yeah. But I pretty quickly started getting hardware that had HDMI. The adoption was quick with that one. And um, my my later devices that followed my VLC prototype then gave way to a PC. I think I reloaded that PC that had KDE, Plasma, and uh, VLC. I just I used that same hardware, and then I put Windows XP Media Center Edition, and then pretty quickly after that, ended up going straight to Windows 7. Do you remember that they had the Windows Media Center remotes with a little icon in the middle? Did you have those? Had one, yeah. Yeah, of course you did. Well, I, I got something special that uh, didn't last very long. This is 2007, Linksys came out with extenders, and this was a big deal. I remember those. Yes. Mm, yes. I never bought one, but... They were just essentially appliance media center clients, and there were a couple of different types, a couple of different vendors, but I thought Linksys had the best, and I had the DMA2200, which was a bad mamma jamma because it was a DVD player, and a Windows Media Extender. So I look at me, right? Like, I'll put that in the bedroom and I'll have a DVD player and a media player extender. That thing is huge. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that was incredible about it back then is that it was one of the first devices of its kind that had 802.11n support. That was a big deal for streaming the HD. They had a smaller one too, the DMA2100. I had one of those as well. But boy, did they just run unreliably. They were... Poor performance, and they disconnected frequently. I think it was one of my shorter-lived experiments. I had a bad experience with the uh, Media Center extenders as well. So the, the promise of a Media Center extender was you had this core Windows Media Center running somewhere, probably under your main TV in the lounge or, or wherever. Yep, I was even doing live TV capture to it as well, which the idea was then you could watch that live TV on these media extenders. And then you have these extenders in your satellite rooms whatever they are you know bedroom kitchen wherever and it was supposedly a full-blown media center experience you know like you had on your primary system but yeah ask my wife they uh they weren't very good no they weren't very reliable i used an xbox 360 in uh, the bedroom to do that for quite some time right it worked that was the best media extender i recall the xbox but then you had to buy (laughs) <laughs> like a $300 Xbox. Yep. And it just was silly. It was just silly. Around that same era, do you know do you know what I replaced these with? Because I'm not sure if you ever saw this box. 
the boxy box. Did you ever see the boxy box? I have that on my list. Yes. yes. <laughs> that was the box, man. Uh. Boxy was so great. Boxy was a cross-platform home theater PC software with a 10-foot user interface, and it had a very big feature that nothing before it really had, if I recall, and it was automatic organization of your videos based on the metadata it could associate with them. Mm-hmm. And then it would build your library for you. And it integrated in a bunch of online services. And it came with a pretty neat keyboard that I don't know if you recall, had a, you flipped it over, it had a full QWERTY keyboard on the back of it. And then you flip it to the other side and it was just a kind of a simple keyboard. I think the boxy box was just five years too early. I don't think enough people really understood what it was capable of. I mean, it was the first one that had a proper 1080p, 10-foot user interface, like you said. It scored all the goals that Windows Media Center missed. You could integrate internet television, you know, like Revision 3 and stuff like that. You could stream that directly into the interface, and it was it was great. Uh, the performance was eh. The price was a little much, but... You know, a lot of things we take for granted now, like uh, having only three or four buttons on our remotes, the Boxy Box was probably one of the first devices to do that because until then, you know, if you look at this Linksys uh, box you mentioned a moment ago, that thing has like 50 buttons on it. And just having a D-pad enter and menu, that that was crazy talk back then. Yeah. It made it until October 16th, 2012, and then D-Link discontinued it. But I loved it. It supported 5.1 surround sound, which a lot of boxes back then didn't. It had a ton of codec support. You know, the thing was Intel-based. It had an Atom CPU in it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It was clearly just ahead of its time, you know. There was the Boxy software as well, but the Boxy box really brought it all together. Yeah. It was really quite a beautiful thing. You know, most of these things look like an amplifier or a, a VHS player, whereas this thing was like a spaceship. The other first that I think the Boxy Box and Boxy did was mobile remote control. So you not only had the nice simple remote control, but they had a first party iOS app and tons of third party Android apps that were just remotes for your Boxy Box that controlled it over Wi-Fi. That's table stakes now, but wasn't it iPhone OS back then? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I seem to recall so in, in this period it was it was just around the major recession. So like two thousand and nine, I just got made redundant. And I went to a charity store and I bought um, the original Xbox. This is when 20 quid was my entire like pocket money because we were, I was unemployed. So I, I mean, 20 quid from the benefit people, you know, it was a rough time. Anyway, I, I bought this um, Xbox thinking, right, I'm going to put XBMC on it. I'm going to be elite super hacker, uh, you know, because I wasn't, I wasn't a Linux guy for several years after this still. So for me, this was following guides on forums, and this this was how you did stuff back then. There weren't YouTube tutorials, really. And there were a, several options on how you would mod or hack the Xbox, some of which included soldering, some of which didn't, and you had to pick which route you wanted to take. Yeah, so I went the solder-free route, and I, I cracked the case open, and I'm sat there on my living room floor, and I have they had these big, long bolts to, that went... They, were, they must have been about three or four inches, because it was a big, thick boy, this, this original Xbox. And uh, the exposed power supply is inside and all the guides are like, do not touch the capacitors, you will die. So I didn't touch the capacitors and I didn't die, clearly, because I'm talking to you now. What I did do, though, was I dropped one of those screws. Oh, no! (laughs) Into the power supply and it went... (laughs) (laughs) There goes your uh, hard-earned dollars. Boom, right there, just gone. So did you have to start over? 
that was my weeks or months entertainment. No, I, I was, it was, that was toast. It was done. Like just went in the bin. Yeah. You had to get a whole new one. Well, I couldn't afford to. So I just st- stuck with what I had. Oh, shoot. Oh, you were so close to a, to a utopia. That was going to be my first time with XBMC as well. But alas, I had to wait. Sometimes a guy never changes, Alex. This won't surprise you to learn that uh, I too attempted to mod it. I bailed and then went on eBay and just bought one that was pre-modded. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. You haven't changed a bit, boy. Nope, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, but I loved it because not only could I save all my games, all my Xbox games to the hard drive because I got one with a bigger hard drive, which was great because they loaded way faster. But then it was just a menu option to launch the media center. So for a brief period of time, I had like the perfect media center game box because it was legit actual Xbox games and a very compelling media center interface. But I moved on because the Xbox hardware really couldn't handle much beyond 480. And you could squeeze a little bit more, but not much. And XBMC started moving to other platforms and then later became known as Kodi, obviously. Yeah, it did. So in 2011, that was the first time that I really remember loading up XBMC and it sticking. I started playing around with all the skins like Aeon Nox that was there. Um, Experience 1080, I think, was another one. And I was running this on my primary desktop. Uh, by this point, I'd amalgamated, you know, I'd been made redundant. I had to sell some stuff to pay rent. I'd amalgamated everything back to one box again. And so that meant whenever I wanted to watch TV, I couldn't use my desktop. And I didn't have a laptop either at that point. Another thing that I remember uh, in roughly 2012, I found a project called Vox Commando. And this let me use the Xbox 360 Connect as a voice interface to do voice recognition to control XBMC. I've got a video on YouTube, which we'll put in the show notes. It's, uh, I mean, for 2012, I mean, that's pretty cool. It's it's a bit basic now, but... Yeah, it's it's not uncommon now, but that is a good point. 2012, that was actually pretty impressive. Speaking of old, embarrassing videos, I'll link a couple in the show notes, because what we're talking about right now was really a sweet spot that I entered, where I discovered the joys of over-the-air HD television and Myth TV at the same time. Ooh, yeah, Myth TV. Yes, and Myth TV was a great application that could pull down all the TV listings and it just acted as a centralized PVR or a DVR, I should say, a a digital video recorder. Well, that was one of the things that Windows Media Center in particular was actually pretty good at. Yes. I had an external cable box. It had an infrared blaster with a little, you know, uh, 3.5 mil jack on the end of it. And it was pretty good, but Myth TV was a Linux thing. So obviously you were going to be all over that. Right. And then what I would do on the other end of that is by various means, I would have XBMC around the house and then XBMC over the network would access the myth recording centrally. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much how I distributed my my live television for quite a while until I was just done with live TV. Over the next sort of five to seven years or so, there was this kind of graph where live TV suddenly became irrelevant and all that you cared about was streaming and YouTube and your pre- cached content um mm-hmm. it was an interesting an interesting time now i had this kind of it was a bit of a hack uh, because i was allergic to noise i had my server under the stairs my desktop under the stairs i had these cat5 usb ethernet things that got my usb2 keyboard and mouse inputs from upstairs to downstairs and a 20 meter, which is like 60 feet, HDMI cable running up the side of the stairs with a two-way splitter. So I could have, 
you know, everything plugged in and still you and still play and everything in a remote room. So literally all I had in the, in the room where my screen was, was screen, keyboard, mouse. And that was it. Everything, all the processing was done elsewhere. Were those cords through the wall or were they like running along the baseboard? Oh, I mean, they were tacked along the, the skirting boards, of course, the baseboards. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Of course. Yeah. 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 One of the things legitimately when, uh, I moved into a house around this time is, um, I had them run conduit so I could run HDMI and stuff like that through the walls. It was a, it was a priority based on that experience. Very much so. This time too, it's tricky to remember, but uh, flash video was still really relevant for online services. Where are we with the iPhones in 2012? What version was that? Like the iPhone 3GS or something, probably? Yeah. And the flash battle was still raging. You know, I don't know if the famous Steve Jobs memo on Flash had been written yet. And this was one of the issues the BoxyBox even struggled with. The BoxyBox lacked Flash support, which made it, ironically, not a very good online media machine. 2012 was the iPhone 4, by the way, just just to clarify. Okay, okay. But also in 2012, the Raspberry Pi 1 was released. Wow. Did you ever use that? I really didn't seriously use the Raspberry Pis until the Raspberry Pi 3. Just not enough horsepower. I bought the MPEG-2 codec, and I did a bit of work with Sam Nazarko, who is the OSMC, which I think turned into OpenELEC, which I think is related to LibreELEC. I'm not totally sure on the, the history there. All I know is that I was able to play on a $35 computer, the genuine first one, 1080p rips in XBMC, mostly flawlessly. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't totally perfect. There were some stutters, but... For that price, it was amazing. Really? You know, speaking of um, these single board computers that we use today, I later, after I moved on from the BoxyBox and the Windows extenders, I ended up with a device that actually has heritage with the Pine 64 today. Really? Yeah. And that's the Popcorn Hour Media Tank. Oh my God, I'd forgotten about Popcorn Hours. Yeah. Totally. I never, I never use one, but they, they always looked super cool. This is one of the devices I just ended up cleaning out um, just a few weeks ago. Cool. So the Popcorn Hour A100 was just under $200, very competitive price point for back then. It was a small, flat box that would play every codec that had ever been invented, all the way up to 1080p. You would open up the top. The top would – you'd four screws – the thumb screws would come off. The top lid would come off and it would fit a 3.5 spinning rust hard drive inside of it that you could use for local media if you wanted to. didn't have Wi-Fi but it had Ethernet, had optical out, HDMI out, a couple of USB ports. You could have external storage as well if you'd like. And with the codec support – uh, and the high-res video support that it had, and high bitrate support as well, so you could actually play Blu-rays, it was probably my favorite box. Like, if I were to go back in time and I could only have one from my past, it would be the Popcorn Hour. Now, the creator of the Popcorn Hour, that gentleman has gone on to do a bunch of other things, including he makes tiny little retro consoles that you can get to play Nintendo games, but he also is, um, I'll probably get the, I didn't look it up for the show, but he's he's either the founder or the investor behind Pine 64. Wow. It's a small world, isn't it? Yeah. And it was, it was wild to learn that because I loved the popcorn hours and it gave me a little bit of understanding of why the Pine folks perhaps have been as good as they are because they've got some real experience with small devices like this. You know, these little popcorn hour media tanks 
also ran Linux. Like a lot of these devices, with the exception of the Windows Media Extender stuff, was all Linux back then. So it was just tons of stuff for me to just dig into. And I ended up putting a couple of these popcorn hours around the house and uh, played off my central server as well as did some local media. And they served their purpose for a really long time. That's super cool. So my server at this point had moved from being just a a Windows box. I'd finally been able to have a a Linux server, which was running Unraid. I'd bought the Synology, done that and sold it because it wasn't flexible enough. Uh, And so I was running Unraid on the server. And um, I read a post on the Unraid forums about GPU pass-through. And I was like, ooh, this sounds interesting. I could buy just a 50 pound graphics card, shove it in my existing server and then have another instance of XBMC. Cool. I'll just run another 20 meter HDMI cable. Perfect. Job done. Except PCI pass through was a little more complicated than this guy made it seem. I would largely chalk the fact that I'm sat here talking to you now up to the fact that I wanted to do PCI pass through because I had to learn how to compile kernels and all sorts of crap. So it was a bit complicated but it worked uh, eventually. Anyway, after probably about six months of trying, <laughs> I ended up switching from Unraid. Uh, well, not from Unraid, but Unraid was no longer the hypervisor. I had Unraid virtualized under Zen, and then I was doing PCI pass through of an Arch VM that I created that just booted straight into X, and then that loaded XBMC immediately. So there was no other graphical interface. And it worked pretty well for six months, a year, whatever. But eventually it broke because it was a was a bit of a hacky thing. And I kind of jumped on board with the Xbox One train for a little while, trying to think that that was going to be the panacea. You know, it was a hypervisor-based multi-OS box that was supposed to be the, the savior, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, re- I recall, boy, I, I just hadn't really thought a lot about the server side of it, but... It was hard to get really current packages that would support GPU decoding early on. Now it's simple. You can do it on any OS. But back in the day, it was one of the reasons I ended up on Arch was so that way I could install versions of server software that would have special GPU support and whatnot. Because you had to have the latest. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I mean, Docker's now largely made the base OS irrelevant. Stuff like the Plex container, particularly the one from the Linux server team, supports GPU acceleration out of the box, even in a Linux, Linux container. So, yeah, like like you say, nowadays, these kids don't even know they're born. It's so easy now. They're born with GPU acceleration in their hands. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Did you ever jump on the uh, Chromecast train? I had a couple of Chromecasts. I've never been a huge fan of it because I don't like sending my video through a third party to then have it show up on my screen. Like, I don't like having anything outside my LAN involved with it, but I honestly probably end up using it, you know, even still about once a month because sometimes it's just the simplest route to go. And now that so many apps support it, like Plex and whatnot, I can't help it. I can't help it. It comes built into stuff now. But um, early on, I was a bit skeptical. I'll admit it. I was a bit skeptical of Chromecast. Still here, though. Still works. Still does the job. If you look at Google products and things they support, they really have done a good job. They've been good stewards of Chromecast. They really have. I ended up discovering Plex really early on because I had a Mac in my studio that ran Final Cut. And I remember the developer emailed into the show saying, hey, I'm porting XBMC to this thing. You should check it out. And I was like, it's Mac only? All right, I'll check it out. Because if I, if I, I might be wrong, but my, it was Mac only early on. And then 
It was a Mac desktop app uh, competing with Apple's Front Row. Oh, wow. I had totally forgotten Front Row. Jeez, yeah. That thing was awful. Front Row was really limited. <laughs> yeah, it was no good. <laughs> so I was like, all right, let's see what you got here. And then pretty soon it took off from there. You know, I, I sort of followed it from the very, very early days. And over time, it became everything that the boxy software was on my hardware, whatever hardware I wanted to run it on. And that's, I think, what got me in the mindset of something like the NVIDIA Shield, something that would be a first-class hardware Plex player, like the popcorn hours were, but just one job, run Plex. That leads us nicely up to 2015, which is when I purchased my first NVIDIA Shield. That one is actually still in service in my lounge. It's still used today. You know, five years later, it's still my primary device for playing back media. I mean, given the timescales we've just talked about, you know, if we go from 2010, what was I using in 2010? Let's have a look. Media browser on top of Windows Media Center to 2015, where I buy the Shields. That's the same length of time. It's amazing it's still in service. Well, NVIDIA did the right thing by putting more CPU in it than it was necessary at the time. Way more, yeah. Yeah, and putting fast disk in there and putting Ethernet in there and Wi-Fi in there. They really just overbuilt it, and then they must have had some sort of conversation with Google <laughs> about supporting it because uh, it's still getting updates, which not even tablets or phones get that on the Android side. Well, I think it's because it was aimed as a media device second and a gaming device first. So they had to put beefy specs in there. They had to put the Tegra GPU and you know decent amount of RAM and storage and all that. And the fact that it played media at the beginning of Android TV's existence was just sort of a nice to have. They wanted you to be able to play mobile games because it shipped with a, a... A game controller. A controller. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. What a joke because I never, ever... I mean, I probably played games on there three times ever, four times ever in the entire lifetime of the thing. How many shields total have you bought over the years? Only two. Ah, okay. Um, so the one that's in my lounge uh, is the original 2015 one. NVIDIA replaced the power supply for free last year when it crapped out on me after like four years. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's great because it's like a proprietary power supply, so that's good. <laughs> yeah. It turns out it's exactly the same as the one that ships with the current shield. So if, if you ever need to know that, now you do. I bought about a month ago the 2019 AI Upscaling Shield Pro, which is slightly smaller. It looks the same. I thought it was the same from looking at the pictures, but it's 25% smaller, like physically. Um, but it does AI 4K upscaling, which is pretty cool. But uh, I think the thing for me that's really meant that the Shield has stuck around for so long is it changes as I do. Right, If I decide I'm using Kodi this month, I can use Kodi. If I'm a Plex guy this month, I could either load up the Plex for Kodi or I could run the native Plex app or if I want to run iPlayer. But it also supports all the big boys like Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, HBO. Yeah, and um, the platforms, because it's Android, like when Disney Plus launched, there was an app for it. And you can just rely on that stuff working where you can't necessarily when you roll it yourself. If you want a great... 4K Netflix experience, it's tricky if you roll something yourself, whereas if you just use an app for that, it's not so bad. And I'm really glad you mentioned the Kodi thing because I talk about Plex a lot, but I heavily use Kodi still, especially especially when I'm on the road and I don't want to bother with any kind of account sign-in crap when I don't have signal and I'm totally off-grid. 
Cody all the time, all the way. I love Cody for that. And the NVIDIA Shield makes a great Cody box. And I've bought like four of these things because I bought two for the RV and I bought two for the studio because I really like them and I wanted to outfit my TVs with them. That said, for about the last nine months, I have been experimenting, brace yourself, with an Apple TV on my primary television. I thought it was funny we'd made it all the way through and you hadn't mentioned an Apple TV. Well, they were just such jokes for so long. And I don't mean to be rude to anybody who really likes the Apple TV, but they were just, they were so limited in their codec support, uh, their app ecosystem, et cetera, et cetera. That's changed with Plex. And um, there is, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but there's a Cody-like app for the Apple TV. I think it might be called Infuse. And those two apps really have changed the game. The performance, I know this is going to sound crazy, is slightly better on the Apple TV than it is on the NVIDIA Shield. I got no complaints, really, until I use something even faster. But where the Apple TV kind of caught my attention, and it was a total lark, I was like, well, let's just plug it in and see, because I had one. It's not even the latest app. It's like one generation behind. And my dad got it for me for Christmas one year, and I just left it in the box. <laughs> like, you know, I was happy with the NVIDIA Shield. Like, I'm like, well, I should try it, right? I should try it. I didn't appreciate, um, and this is kind of cliche, the ecosystem. So when you have an Apple TV, all of your iOS devices become aware of its existence. And that turns my watch into a remote control without me having to fuss with it. That makes my HomePods a voice-controlled playback speaker for my television. That means with one tap, I can send my television audio to my HomePods. I can also just include the Apple TV as part of an AirPlay destination with AirPlay 2 or whatever it is. And so all of the HomePods and the Apple TV can all have synchronized audio with just a tap. And my phone has a pull-down remote that I just pull down in the corner, tap it, and now I can pause, rewind. And when you have kids and other folks, I won't name names, wife in the house that lose the remote constantly... Well, I mean, the Apple TV remote is like a bar of soap. Yes, yes. And it's symmetrical, so you don't know which way up it is when you're holding it without looking at it. I hate the remote, but I do like how easy it is to control the Apple TV from all the other devices in the home. If I was all in on the Android ecosystem, then may be different. But because we have iPads and iPhones in the house and Apple Watches, it's exceptionally nice how all of that just works. And then last but not least, I've always preferred... Apple's AirPlay over the Chromecast because AirPlay is over the LAN and it's just device to device, no internet connection, no nothing. And that's always been my preferred method. And the Apple TV obviously supports that. I have not pulled any of my three other NVIDIA Shields out and don't plan to replace them with Apple TVs. I just like it for this one television and I don't recommend it to other people. I always tell people, get the NVIDIA Shield. Don't do like Chris does. (laughs) I think the remote's something that we often overlook. And if I think back over the years, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the boxy remote, the w- Windows Media Center remotes. We should probably throw the Harmony products in there at some point. I had to, you know, at one point, when I was talking this through with Catherine earlier. She said, oh, do you remember that time when you had like nine remotes on the coffee table? And I was like, yeah. And we bought a Harmony remote for like 300 pounds to solve that problem. And we used it for, you know, a good three, four, five years, something like that. And uh, it was only a couple of years ago that I stopped using the Harmony Hub thing, which kind of replaced that for me in a lot of ways. But when you start thinking about using the Pi as a media center or anything that is, you know, self-built, 
an angle that is often overlooked is the remote. Now, you could argue that your smartphone makes up for a lot of the shortcomings of not having a physical hardware, you know, a, a decent quality remote. But the uh, the brand new Shield comes with a new Toblerone triangular shaped remote thing. How do you like that? I love it. Can you buy just a remote? Because I don't need a whole new Shield, but I like that idea of that new shaped remote. $50. The, t- I'll tell you the nice thing is because it's a triangle shape. It kind of lies on its side. And so whenever you want to pick it up, it's already the right way up. And it's got a little Netflix button on it that you can download an app, I think called Button Remapper or something on the Shield. And you can remap the Netflix button to Plex. So, Oh, fantastic. Because I really don't need a Netflix button. I don't, I don't need that. No, no. Who does? No. That's such a big deal for them, too, for those companies to get buttons on the remotes. I don't want any of it. I really don't know how I'll adapt to a quote-unquote smart TV when I do buy one. I'm very, very fortunate that all of my TVs are still dumb TVs. They're just displays. You've had some luck with smarter TVs, and I wonder if maybe it's something I should reconsider. Well, I mean, in one of the earlier episodes this year, I talked about the uh, LG 4K TV, the OLED that I bought, and that has WebOS in it. And the the only time I found it useful is when I, I want to play super high bitrate, you know, the best possible quality because when the playback client is built into the same system as the screen all the hdr stuff just works all the dolby pass through stuff just works it's no problem whereas when it goes through a receiver or through some kind of other audio device you have to you have to think about the signal path and that's fine if it's me but if it's wifey then sometimes uh i mean to be honest does she care if it's surround sound or stereo probably not but i care yeah if she gets something started and you sit down and you realize 15 minutes into it that it's in stereo not surround sound it's like okay well now i gotta stop we gotta switch (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and it's transcoding the audio from you know dolby dts to you know stereo i'm like what are you doing you animal (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've heard good things about WebOS, uh, and I've heard good things about the Roku televisions. Yeah. So there's three TVs in this house. One is the LG, and the other two are the Roku TCL 55-inch guys. And they're just great. I mean, Roku is a super solid option. It sort of became popular around the same sort of time as the Shield purchase for me, so I never bought one. Same with the Fire Stick, the Fire TVs that Amazon make. I know they're popular as well. Oh, I have tried those. And? Nowhere near the Shield. They're fine, but they're nowhere near the Shield. But they're in the same um, price point as a Chromecast. And the difference with a Chromecast is it's a cast, obviously, device, whereas the Fire TV is a remote kind of 10-foot interface type thing. Yeah, and the Fire TV has a couple of nice options if you're traveling, including it supports Wi-Fi captures in hotels. Ooh. So that's why I've I've bought a couple of Fire Sticks over the years is that's just a really nice trick to have built into a portable media device like that. So the Roku's, I have some indirect experience because I've helped some family members get them going. And I've always thought they've seemed like pretty good devices. And it may be in a parallel universe, I would have gone the Roku route. However, I think you and I both sort of want something that's high performance and performs sort of reliably uh, when we're using the television. And it's not that the Rokus don't, but when you get into more complicated apps, you can kind of see the walls. You can see the edges of the holodeck, if you will. A great example was uh, this weekend, Formula One is back. Hooray! Turns out there is a Kodi plugin for F1 TV. It's all 
legal, so far as I'm aware. I paid for the subscription. I'm using the, my API key and, and password and stuff. So maybe Kodi isn't one of their sanctioned playback platforms, but whatever, it worked. And I thought, cool, I'm going to install this plugin in Kodi and off we go. You know, so just having that flexibility of being able to do whatever I want is why the Shield wins for me. Yeah, for me, I have to have a machine in the house that can run Kodi on the television. That's like a mandatory because or when I say house, I mean the RV, obviously, because the problem with Plex, God bless it, is over the years, it's becoming more and more dependent on the online experience between the streaming offerings. But also if you set up multiple profiles so that way you could have like a dad profile, a kid's profile. In order to select that user, you have to have an internet connection. You ha- it has to be able to authenticate through their server, and then you can then choose the user account, which really stinks. And Cody doesn't have any of that. And yeah, it takes a little extra work to make a centralized database with Cody if you care about that kind of stuff. But it's so nice having that option there. Yeah, geez, I remember the advanced settings.xml with a MySQL database somewhere. Geez, that's going back a bit. But you know. It's not really necessary when you just want to watch an episode of Voyager. It's not really a big deal. So now you've heard how Chris and I both arrived at completely separate lives at the same the same point. I'm super curious to know how you all arrived at the points that you're at with your media servers over the last decade or, or more. Uh, so write in to selfhosted.show slash contact. Yeah, let us know your journey and um, what works for you. I'm always still curious. I would consider changing it up if somebody had a really good recommendation that came in and then report back on the show. So join the Discord and chat about it in there, selfhosted.show slash Discord. You know someone's going to write in with that Kaleidoscope DVD changer. I remember that. My dad had one of those. My dad also had Laserdisc, which that was a big deal. That was pretty awesome. My dad did a lot of the old versions of that. My dad had a had a Betamax player a VHS player, a Laserdisc player, and then a Blu-ray player. Um, and, you know, he's always kind of done the traditional route. And when I got my own place, I just realized it did a very similar journey, but with just more modern stuff. I remember in the back of my dad's Volvo when I was a kid, he had a six CD Sony auto changer. And for the for six months, we had the same six CDs and then he changed them all out. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd get Tina Turner replaced with Dire Straits, and it was magical. <laughs> well, we really took that uh, those six CD changers to the next level is when you can start burning your own CDs, you know? Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Who needed anything else? <laughs> and then Bluetooth. <laughs> oh, I still hate Bluetooth, actually. It's the bane of my existence. It doesn't like you either, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that little journey down memory lane. That was Self-Hosted 23.